0: Pints
1: with Jack, Season 2, Episode 19
0: The Great Divorce, Chapter 12 The Great Lady
1: Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity We're currently in Season 2 in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and as usual, I am joined by my dearest of friends, David. And David has been incredibly instrumental in my journey of letting go of my own chains that stop me from being in love himself
0: wow you 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 really really jammed that one in there didn't you
1: <laughs> well i figured if i laid on thick these ones that i lead you would be more inclined to let me continue leading
0: no in season three we're swapping over again
1: <laughs> the experiment failed you're done no
0: no i just think each season will alternate
1: ah uh, that sounds fair i guess i get i get that logic so what's our quote of the week though there was a lot you could have chose from by the way
0: Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in this chapter, but in the end, I settled on this little section from MacDonald when he's talking about this great lady that we're about to meet. He says, Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them
1: not less true, but truer
0: to their own wives.
1: Interesting choice. I would have gone with a different one.
0: Well, as usual, you can point it out as we go through, and I'll tell you why that was an inferior choice. But (laughs) this whole episode that we're about to read through is actually split up over two chapters. And I think this chapter really focuses on the great lady that we're going to meet. And... In the next chapter, it focuses a little bit more on the ghost, or ghosts, as we'll find out.
1: I really want to read it right now.
0: Nope, nope, we'll do that next week.
1: Okay, fine, I'll wait, I'll wait.
0: What are you drinking this week?
1: Yeah, so I actually picked up, I actually picked up a few different things, so I'm set for the next few episodes we record. But I, I went with a Johnny Walker black label, 12 years aged.
0: Not bad, I like Johnny Walker.
1: So I I always see Johnny Walker. I have never in my life tried it.
0: Yes, you have. You've tried the green label. I know, because I gave it to you.
1: Clearly wasn't very memorable. My (laughs) expectations are now low for when I try this.
0: It was very early on. Um, Green label's good. Black label's good. I think blue label is overrated, which is good because it's very expensive.
1: My issue with why I haven't tried Johnny Walker is I actually believe they've diluted their brand. There's just too much out there. I can't tell. There's black label, red label, blue label, green label. And it's like, all right, guys, come on. <laughs> y- y- and then you've got years within them all. Black label, 12 years. It's like, I don't know what's better and what's worse.
0: You want them to adopt the in and out business model. Just five items on the menu. You choose one. Done.
1: Yes. And then I know which one's the best.
0: Well, the listeners might be able to hear that I'm a little sick this week, and that's because this last weekend I was in Seattle for a conference and I picked up a bug on the plane. So I'm actually drinking some Bundaberg ginger beer because I find it rather soothing. But the conference was great. It was called Shared Inheritance. I have talked about it a while back, but it was designed to get Eastern Orthodox and Catholics, particularly Eastern Catholics, uh, together for us to be able to see our shared inheritance.
1: Oh, wow. That actually sounds like it would be really fascinating.
0: Well, I did think of our podcast at one point. Uh, Father Stephen Freeman was speaking. He's an Eastern Orthodox priest. And uh, what does this put you in mind of? Jesus did not die to make bad men better, but to make dead men live. Moralism is simply the process of teaching a corpse to
1: behave. Oh, my goodness. He's, he has stolen that from Lewis, switched Tin Man to corpse.
0: <laughs> it's good, though, isn't it?
1: It is. Anyway, with that, cheers. Cheers, my friend. You know what? I was quick to judge Johnny Walker. Smoother than I was expecting. Yeah, I like it. I actually do too, but this is blended. I can't believe I'm enjoying a blended.
0: Green Label is also blended and it's delicious. No more hatred against blended scotches. They're
1: great. Yeah, I've been changed.
0: Well, speaking of changes, we should welcome some people.
1: Yeah, we have a lot of wonderful new people. We, I guess we had a, a shout-out from Unbelievable. David and I chatted about them on a recent episode, and they chatted about us, and a lot of you guys came over, and hopefully a lot of you will stay and enjoy listening to us. But welcome, <laughs> because David and I love doing this. And just a bit of a, a background, we go through these C.S. Lewis books. We love C.S. Lewis. David and I are enthusiasts. We're not experts. But we've just found C.S. Lewis to be an incredible narrator of the Christian faith. He tells a story well. He synthesizes theological points incredibly well, and we've been going through his books and highlighting them. So we, we welcome you guys along the journey with us.
0: And at the moment, we are just finishing up The Great Divorce. We've probably got about another month left, and then we'll be starting a new book, which we will announce later.
1: If you are interested, like if you're someone just coming into this, and, and you're not sure if you want to jump in or commit, first of all, commit, but... If you want to dip your toes in, I'd recommend going to the retrospective of Mere Christianity. That's a really good way to hear us talk about the big impact and the big themes that we had in it. Or like the preface of The Great Divorce is another great episode. Like those are really good standalone episodes that you can get a lot from.
0: And you can browse this and you can see also the videos that we did at pintswithjack.com.
1: Yes. Well, I listened to that lovely interview you had with The Great Divorce Project, gentlemen.
0: Yeah, Justin Thomas. Yeah. I loved his little dig at you.
1: I forgot about this.
0: For those of you who haven't listened to that episode yet, over the course of this season, I've referenced videos from The Great Divorce Project. There are a series of vignettes, short scenes from The Great Divorce, and they were put together by a church in Seattle. And as we've been going through the book, I've been referencing them when we've been discussing the appropriate chapter. And Matt has consistently forgotten to actually watch them in advance of our recording. Uh, But Justin Thomas, who was the guy I interviewed, he said that they're going to be going to a film festival in New York. And so I commented, oh, that's great. Matt can go. And he said, yeah, that way Matt will actually be able to watch them. (laughs)
1: Little does he know, when I go to things like plays, shows, movie theaters, I fall asleep within the first five minutes. So most likely I would not actually see it.
0: Well, did you watch this week's video?
1: I didn't know we were still doing this. <laughs>
0: dude. It's in the show notes.
1: As if I read those beforehand. This time I wanted to tease David a little bit because he, he messed with me. I prepped for an entire episode to then find out we weren't even going to do it for another week. And so I had this already done in my own Word document notes, and we usually share them a bit beforehand so you can see uh, a little bit what the other person's gathered from it. We can be somewhat synced up. I dropped it in two hours beforehand. I wanted to make him sweat to think Matt's leading this and he hasn't done anything.
0: I was not worried.
1: Hey, that's good. I've trained you to know that I get it done.
0: No, I just thought if you haven't prepared, you're the one that looks stupid, not me.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, we should... Our listeners are probably like, how long does it take them to get into the actual episode?
0: You're quite right. So let's recap where we got to in the book.
1: (laughs) I am right. Although this was great because when I had coffee with Casey and Nick... Nick pointed out to me, because I asked him, we were talking about the podcast, we we're talking about how much we talk in the beginning sometimes. And he goes, you know, I don't, it's not too big of a deal. I just know it usually is about eight minutes and skip it, it's, which it's I actually appreciated that. It's like,
0: <laughs> this is the reason why if you look in the show notes, I actually put time codes for when we start doing the, the summary, when we actually get down to the discussion and the haikus. So people can just jump to what interests them.
1: That's great. Actually, I didn't know you did that. That's very kind of you, David. <laughs>
0: uh my co-host everyone uh okay let's get on uh so let's just recap where we've got to in this book particularly for newcomers so lois is in the foothills of heaven and he's seeing interactions between these ghosts people who have come up from this gray town which we find out is hell or purgatory depending upon your point of view and they meet bright spirits so last week we met the mother and the lizard so the, the mother was the ghost with a disordered motherly love, and the lizard was a ghost with this little red lizard on his shoulder that was symbolic of his lust, another disordered love. But this week, we're going to meet somebody quite amazing. So, let's cue the music, and I'll run through a summary for this next chapter. A great procession approaches, and Lewis sees it is for a beautiful lady. Macdonald explains that her name is Sarah Smith, one of the Great Ones. The procession is made up of angels, as well as boys and girls and animals that she knew on Earth. The lady walks towards two ghosts, a tall ghost, the tragedian, who is being led on a chain by a dwarf ghost. While the lady only addresses the dwarf, it's the tragedian who speaks. We discover that they are one person, her husband on Earth. The tragedian is upset that she's been happy in heaven without him. She replies, how should I not? I am in love. He's then horrified to discover that she no longer needs him. She urges the dwarf to let go of the chain, send it away. It is you I want. He starts to smile and grow a little bigger.
1: This is the last spirit ghost combination we have before the end of the book Mm -hmm. is you talked about the last episode we recorded with this book or the last chapter was a very distorted love this week we see more of that a distorted love but this time it focuses a lot more on the right ordering of it
0: yeah normally the bright spirits in these stories are just for contrast with the ghost but i think you're right i think in this chapter lewis puts his focus actually on the bright spirit on this great lady
1: it's it's an incredible climax I mean, Lewis nails it in this chapter. So for people who are new to the podcast, you guys are coming at a great time. <laughs> but it, the chapter begins, though, with a procession. And Lewis is still talking with McDonald. He's turned his attention. He sees this procession coming, and he mentions that there's this bright light emitting from it. And he's a bit confused at first until he recognizes these bright spirits coming. And in the beginning, there's some bright spirits that are dancing, and they're scattering flowers. And then you see, call it maybe the next layer of the procession. You see these boys and girls on each side. And then you see these musicians. And then finally, trailing all of this is this lady of honor. And Lewis, over the next few paragraphs, paints this incredible picture of what it looks like to be in communion with God. We've seen a lot more pictures of what it looks like to reject communion of God. Now we get the alternative, the contrast with it.
0: And one of the most beautiful lines in this section is when he speaks about the song that they're singing. And Louis says, If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. There's just this idea that life is just pouring over.
1: Mm, that's beautiful. I remember when it, so when I was reading this, did you feel this pull within you? Like this part of you that was resonating with it? Just thinking to yourself, gosh, I hope someone describes me this way. Like, I hope when people leave, they, they get one one thousandth of this feeling with, about me. <laughs> yeah, I
0: just wanted to join the party. I, I suppose on a natural level, there are some people that you meet who are like this insofar as when that person is around, everybody is filled with life and becomes you know the best version of themselves. Kinder, gentler, more alive. And that's what this lady is in this scene.
1: So we see this procession, and Lewis begins by pointing out the clothes, or lack thereof. He couldn't decide. He's he's asking himself, does she have clothes or does she not have clothes on? Because he said, if if she were naked, her courtesy and joy produced the illusion of a great and shining training that followed her across the happy grass, and if she were clothed, her innermost spirit shone through her clothes. I mean, the language he uses to describe her was incredibly beautiful. It was as if their body and her clothes were one.
0: And we've come across this idea before with the other bright spirits. It just seem to be particularly magnified with this lady.
1: Mm-hmm. It's so magnified. He says, is it? Is it? Dot, 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 question mark. And I have no idea what you thought, David, but I thought it was referencing, is it the Blessed Mother?
0: Mm-hmm. I remember the very first time I read this book, and I laughed out loud when it came to that section. Because <laughs> he sees this great lady in heaven you know and he's probably thinking revelation 12 the the woman in heaven who gives birth to the messiah who's seen in this resplendent glory clothed with the sun but what's even funnier is that lewis then finds out nope it is not the theotokos it is not the mother of jesus her name is sarah smith the way he treats sarah smith it actually explains why particularly the catholic and the orthodox and coptic hold mary with such regard because here we're just seeing Sarah Smith. I immediately apologize to anyone who actually called Sarah Smith out there, but I think he was really shooting for a very average name. That is the point of this character, that she is somebody who just quietly does the will of God. And we see in her eternal reward that this is reflected in heaven, that because she loved greatly, she receives this glory and honor from God.
1: In she's described as one of the great ones.
0: Which reminds us of the artist. If you remember, we were told in that chapter that fame in this country is a little different. I think when we think about this, we automatically import our very unheavenly standards. We immediately want to compare and contrast. Yes. We immediately think it's a zero-sum game. Well, if, if the saint at the cloud next to mine is doing a little better than me, then he's taking something away from me. And I think that's very far from the heavenly reality.
1: David, this is why we work, because I'm going to talk a little bit later about scarcity. It's a way to set that up.
0: But one last thing I do want to say about this Sarah Smith character, because we're going to find out that she's not that special. She is not a St. Francis or St. Dominic or St. Augustine. She wasn't a great theologian. She didn't travel to another continent and convert it. She lived out her sainthood in the day-to-day by loving greatly. One of my favorite quotations from St. Teresa of Calcutta is, There are no great works, there are no great acts, only small things done with great love. Do you remember last week when we encountered the lustful lizard? Oh, very much so. And when it knows that it's about to be killed, it starts saying, Oh, if, if, if I'm killed, you'll be alone. Do you really want to be without me?
1: Oh yeah, bunch of half-truths.
0: Exactly. Well, in Augustine's Confessions, he speaks about his lustful desires. And how they whispered in his ear and said very similar things, saying, that you don't want to get rid of us because then you'll be alone. Do you really want to be without us? And then in the very next section, he personifies continence, this virtue.
1: What's continence?
0: Continence is uh, sexual self-restraint. It's one of the virtues.
1: Oh, okay. But it's, is it, sorry, is it different from chastity?
0: Mm, it's very similar. Okay. But on the heels of this section where he's talking about how his lustful passions used to whisper in his ear, he then says, but then the dignity of continence appeared to me. And he personifies her as this great lady. And he says that there were so many young men and maidens, a multitude of youth of every age, grave widows and ancient virgins, and continence herself in all, not barren, but a fruitful mother of children of joys. So he says that, As he was battling with his sexual temptation, God gave him grace. And this is personified as a great lady. And she urges him. She urges him. She says, Don't try and stand on your own strength because that's not working. She says, Cast yourself on the Lord without fear, and he will receive you and heal you.
1: The sentence that sticks out to me Constance, she was not barren, which seems a bit counterintuitive because you think, oh, Constance, or let's just use the word chastity, maybe a bit more accessible. Makes you think, oh, barrenness. But instead, a, an incredible fruitfulness comes out of that. And that fits perfectly with what we see next here in this chapter. Because when they're talking about the dancing people around the lady in the beginning, Lewis asks, who are they? And McDonald's response is, well, haven't you seen Milton? A thousand liviared, angel, lackey, her? And so I looked that up, and it was John Milton he's referring to, and it's the 17th century, and it's this this mask which i guess is some sort of like play or entertainment thing and it's called comus so this is where it comes from it's all about chastity actually it says so dear to heaven is saintly chastity that when a soul is found sincerely so a thousand livered angel lackey her driving far off each thing of sin and guilt and in a clear dream and solemn vision teller of things that no gross ear can hear Painting this just incredible beauty of chastity, and so I'm actually curious now that I've read this and what you just said, Augustine. If John Milton read Augustine, because there seemed to be a bit of an overlap with that of just trying to paint this picture of there's there's a, an incredible gift that comes from espousing that. And Lewis talked about it with a lizard. This energy comes from when you channel it in the right way, but our world tells you the exact opposite.
0: And we have all of this coming together in a fairly ordinary christian lady called sarah smith who when she comes to heaven all of this is truly revealed a life that looked ordinary turned out to be far from ordinary
1: sarah smith i'll never judge that name again (laughs) then there's a really beautiful scene here when she's talking about the young men and the young women that are around her McDonald points out that they're her sons and daughters and lewis's first reaction was well wait what about their own parents Like, did she take away? It was a very scarcity mindset. If she was like a motherly figure to them, does that mean that their mothers were less or their parents were less? He said, absolutely not. In fact, they went back to their parents loving them more. The same thing is stated about the men that met her. Did these men love their wives less when they met her? Absolutely not, McDonald points out. He says, in fact, her love was so abundant and pure that men met her and they would have a truer and purer love toward their own wives. This is just, at first notice that Lewis's response is a scarcity of love. Our world is somewhat built off of this concept of scarcity. There's only so many resources, so many commodities, so many talents. You think to yourself, if someone gets something, I have less of it. If David, let's say you make a bunch of friends And me, as one of your friends, thinks to myself, oh, well, now I get less of David. Like, we think that way. That's how humans think. And he's painting a picture here of a very different kind of love, a heavenly love, an eternal love that is not a scarcity, but of abundance. That's very hard for us to grasp. You know the best part about this section, though? He's talking about the men, the children. Even the animals become more themselves around her. And in fact, I go a step further. It said the grass was happy under her. That's less than an animal. So we just got this whole picture of this person who anyone, anything she interacts with becomes better just by being around her.
0: And if you actually remember, we spoke about this back in Mere Christianity. And we both kind of scratched our heads at it. This is in Book 4, Chapter 8. Lewis says... I think I can see how the higher animals are, in a sense, drawn into man when he loves them and makes them, as he does, much more nearly human than they would otherwise be. I can even see a sense in which the dead things and plants are drawn into man as he studies them and uses them and appreciates them. So even back in mid-Christianity, Lewis had this idea that not just human life, but all of nature can be drawn closer to God through man.
1: All of this we're talking about is summarized in this quote that I thought should have been for the chapter. Megano points out the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. That them means other people, that them means other things, as you talked about the animal side of things. And what's interesting is in this section, Lewis points out, think of her life as this stone being thrown into a pool and the concentric circles that happen. And they just keep going out and out and out. And so essentially, we're getting a picture of all those concentric circles. But here's what he says, fitting with everything you just said here. Redeemed humanity is still young. So in this section, he talks about what's going to happen as this ripple effect continues to occur. So you talked about an example, a beautiful example of redeeming the animals and drawing them into Honestly, the creation story, the salvation story, but the more the renewal and the restoration, we're seeing examples of people she's interacting with. But I I never thought of it that way. Redeemed humanity is still young. And it does
0: underscore the idea that God works through regular human beings. You ever considered what an incredible thing it is that God seeks the salvation of humans through other humans? God is ultimately the source of grace. He's the one that's drawing them to himself. But he chooses to use us as instruments through which God's grace actually flows.
1: He says in here, there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Wow. (laughs) I lost the words there. Well, that pretty much wraps up the first part where we get this beautiful picture of this bright spirit. But of course, a chapter wouldn't be a chapter if we didn't get an interaction with a ghost. So enter stage right, the ghost, and as David articulated, the tragedian, even though I would have said tra- tragedian, tragedian, <laughs> I thought <it> was like, <laughs> I was thinking of tragedy.
0: Well, that's where the root of it comes from. Uh, A tragedian is somebody who specializes in tragic roles. So, for example, you know, like Sean Bean's characters, whoever he's playing in any kind of movie or TV series, he usually dies. (laughs) So it's that kind of typecasting. So a tragedian is an actor who specializes in tragic roles.
1: Oh, well, there we go. So now that I know it's tragedian... This is yeah, going to get I... funnier the more you drink. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told myself I'm not going to pour myself a second one because I'm a little afraid I'm not going to be able to pronounce tragedian. So we have the ghost and the tragedian. And we're going to see the interaction between the bright spirits, uh, Sarah Smith, and these characters, which we'll find are one. But what is incredible about this section is the first part of this chapter, we saw the effect that she had. Now we're going to see a person in communion with God who's got that abundance poured into her, how she interacts with someone who doesn't. I learned a lot from this interaction, actually. She could have got pulled down the way he treats her, the way he acts, the things that he says, and it's easy to get sucked into that and to, to stoop to different levels in conversations. She, she never does. It's amazing, this interaction. There's so much wisdom in this.
0: And I would say that they're quite opposites. Oh, yeah. You know, She's humble. And he's prideful. And she's clearly authentic and helps people live their true lives. And he's inauthentic. And we're going to find out he presents a, a false self.
1: So just for the listener, what, what we have here is we've got two characters that are actually the same character. One is a dwarf, which is the shorter little character that has a chain in the hand with this tragedian, which is this tall character that has a collar on that's attached to the chain that the dwarf is holding. And so the lady addresses very deliberately the dwarf, who we find out is her husband. And she starts in a very tender way, says, darling, and Lewis writes, love shone not from her face only, but from all her limbs, as if it were some liquid in which she had just been bathing. So she starts with this incredibly tender, disposition, and starts the conversation out asking for forgiveness. She probably doesn't own a lot of this, but the first thing she does is says, darling, please forgive me for the way I've wronged you. And so then we see the tragedian, which is the larger character, responds by saying, there, there, we'll say no more of that. It's not myself I'm thinking about, it's you. That is what has been continually on my mind all these years. The thought of you you here alone, breaking your heart about me. He wants to be the center of her attention. And so I got this picture. The tragedian is more this false self, this defense mechanism. And the dwarf is his true self. And this dwarf is the part of him that's hurt, that's wounded, that feels like it's not worthy, as we're going to see throughout these interactions. And the tragedian is the part that is response to that. And what I love throughout this is she 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 does doesn't speak to tragedian. She speaks to the dwarf and attempts to affirm the dwarf and speak right to that worthiness. And so I thought that Lewis was very intentional with the times that both of them spoke.
0: Absolutely. She speaks to his true self and doesn't even try to interact with this puffed up full self that he keeps trying to present.
1: And how often... I mean, there's times where we're talking, there's times when every interaction I'm talking with my false self comes out. There's times when I get defensive and that's my false self. Imagine if you as a person on the other side can rise up above that and be like, you know what, Matt's acting this way clearly just because he's getting defensive for X, Y, Z. I'm just going to speak past that and I'm going I'm to have grace on that knowing that's not his true self and speak to the true self. Just think about that for a second. That's really hard to do. Like if you talk to me and your false self starts posturing and pivoting and to getting defensive and then makes me feel defensive, we're probably going to disintegrate together and we're going to go deteriorate in this downward spiral. It's amazing how she can just go above that.
0: So after the tragedian has said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll speak no more about it in reference to her apology, the dwarf asks the lady whether or not she missed him. And she tries to explain that he'll understand things better later. But at this point, the dwarf and the tragedian, they look at each other and in unison point out the fact that she didn't answer the question. And it's at this point that Lewis realizes what we've realized, that these two ghosts are actually two different aspects of the same person. The tragedian is the mask, the ego, and the dwarf is who the man really actually is. And I'd say he's probably represented as a dwarf because of this false humility and this self-pity that he seems to be been wallowing in. And the tragedian is tall and an actor. Lewis says that the tragedian reminds him of him as an actor of the old school. So he's very dramatic. And he's that way because he's an act. He's a projection of his false self. And the dwarf rattles the chain, and the tragedian asks the question again. Did you miss me? And the lady just encourages him just to be happy. Forget about the past forever. And the ghost hesitates briefly, but it then speaks to itself again, saying, well, you know, we could be magnanimous, but would she notice? Which is kind of hilarious, because that's not the point of magnanimity. Magnanimity is largeness of soul. And this guy is a ghost, he's demonstrating his smallness. And he actually even emphasizes this by pointing to one of her great sins, was that one time he had given her his last stamp, even though she knew that he needed it.
1: Yeah, they won't let it go. No. And, and they want this recognition that they are selfless.
0: And this actually reminds me of something that we mentioned the last week or the week before uh, in the Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape distinguishes between unselfishness and love. He says, get your patient to concentrate on being unselfish rather than being loving. Because if you love, you seek the other person's good. But if you're unselfish, it's almost like you're keeping a tally of of all the things that you've done for that person instead.
1: If you think about what is the false self at its core in life, we need a certain amount of affirmation. Like we, as humans, we like to be affirmed. When we're not affirmed enough, we put on this false self that acts a certain way to win affirmation, whether you're good looking enough, you're successful enough, you're smart enough, whatever it is, athletic enough to get that affirmation. Like that's what's happening here. The false self, the tragedian, needs affirmation, won't let this go, needs to be acknowledged we were selfless, we've given this up, we've loved, we get the last stamp you got, like that's the tragedian, the false self needs affirmation.
0: And he ultimately declares that he can't forgive and won't forgive. Nope. Although I actually think it's really around the other way. He won't forgive and therefore he can't.
1: And it's here that happiness enters into it. And the dwarf is amazed to find out that she's actually happy. Specifically says, do you mean you are happy? And she points out, didn't you want me to be? And spoiler alert, not exactly. <laughs> At least not without the need of him. Like there, there's a little bit more here. It's like, I want you to be happy, but only by needing me or only with me.
0: And she actually even gets right past that. She says, no matter,
1: want it now. Or or don't even think about it at all. And the tragedian's still trying to bully here, it says. The tragedian doesn't want to give up. And she continues speaking past it. I think that's amazing. She even says darling again. She's literally ignoring this false self.
0: There's a wonderful line here. Lewis says that in regards to the dwarf, one could see an unheard of idea trying to enter his little mind. And we're told that he's almost ready to let go of the chain that's holding the tragedian. But in a moment, he's back again. And Lois gives probably my favorite line of this chapter, when he says that he was using his manly, bullying tone this time, the one for bringing women to their senses. (laughs) The lady explains that he didn't really want her to be miserable for misery's sake, only because he thinks
1: that love would have
0: necessitated it, but
1: that's actually
0: not the case.
1: We learn right here what is the issue with the dwarf. He doesn't feel worthy, and he doesn't feel worthy of her love, hence the tragedian, hence the false self. She says directly to the dwarf, you only think I must have been miserable if I loved you. But if, if you'll only wait, you'll see that it isn't so. He thought if she loved me, she, she had to be miserable. It's a self-worth issue. So much of our spiritual journey, self-worth, plays a massive role into it. We don't feel worthy of love.
0: And what's funny and sad is that the existence of the tragedian is him trying to compensate. Yes. Thinking that because he's not worthy, he has to project a stronger version of himself. But if this episode teaches us anything, is that what his wife really wanted was him.
1: Yes. Not the tragedian. In what's so beautiful here, Fulton Sheen has said this before, but to make an unlovable person lovable, you have to love them. We're seeing that in action here. The false self constantly tries to overwhelm the true self. The tragedians constantly trying to interject. Bully was even the word used. And she ignores it. And she just knows, you know what, that's not him. And I'm going to make him feel worthy. I'm going to call him darling. Even the face of all these accusations. Because remember, the false self is still him speaking. We're just seeing it presented in a different way. And she ignores it and continues to speak love, sow words of of worthiness into him to attempt to heal him. When we reach that point, when we can be in communion with God and we're filled with his abundance of love, that's what we're called to be able to do eventually, is what she's doing here.
0: But this is where the tragedian goes into his serious acting mode. Love, said the tragedian, striking his forehead with his hand, and then a few notes deeper. Love. Love. Do you even know the meaning of the word? <sniffs> and she says that, yeah. <laughs> her response is beautiful. It's very, it, this is actually what very nearly became the quote of the week. She says that because she's in love, i.e. in God, she can now love truly. But the Tragedian sees this as, as, as a challenge and asks her if, well, in that case, did you not really love me before? And she says that she did, but it was only in what she called a poor sort of way, because she needed him. And she says that because we're now here in heaven, there's no more need, which means that we can love each other better. It's not that need love is bad, but now that they don't need each other, they can love each other freely.
1: Would you say, from the four loves, it's safe to say that need love, well, it's not bad. It's really meant to be completely oriented towards God in the sense that if when we get into communion with him, we don't need anyone else. It's, it, when it's at its fullest, it's not designed for anyone else. I don't think
0: I'd put it in quite those terms. Because, as you say, need love isn't bad.
1: But it's meant to pull us to him.
0: Y- yes, and uh, it's that line from McDonald where he says, the only good is God. Everything is good when it turns to him and when his hand is at the wheel. And things go bad when they turn away from him. So need love, uninformed by God's love, will go bad. Even gift love can go wrong when it's not informed by God's love.
1: I just, the reason I ask that is because you get a picture here that once she's in communion with God, the need love is fully satisfied. That there is no more at need for anyone else.
0: The issue where need love becomes problematic is when it becomes overriding when somebody is seeking what they need to find in God, in their spouse. Which is back to this Augustinian idea of rightly ordered loves.
1: It's like, I just saw somewhere, was it you and I talking, or was it some video that I saw? But Matt Fradd was essentially saying, he's the one that talks about theology and the body, where he told his wife something along the lines of, you don't fully satisfy me.
0: Dude, that was in an episode that you and I recorded two weeks ago.
1: Oh, was it really? A lot of this stuff blends together that I do, (laughs) so (laughs) it was in the back of my mind. And it
0: wasn't Matt Fred; it was Christopher West.
1: Oh, there we go. (laughs) I love that that was an episode here.
0: My search for a new co-host
1: continues. (laughs) I love, though, that this has been going on for a few weeks and to no success yet. I'm going to take that as a compliment. I'm not
0: quite ready to give up just yet. (laughs) I have hope for you, Matthew.
1: They say when your coach stops yelling at you, that's when they've given up. Got to bring this back to Lewis. She says, I am full now, not empty. I am in love, capital L, himself. Not lonely, strong, not weak. You shall be the same. Come and see. We shall have no need for one another now. We can begin to truly love. Oh, so what did you make, though, the next part, where it talks about the lying dead at my feet? That made no sense to me. Actually, I've got nothing there of how to segue it either, so...
0: Uh, I, I think he's just being a tragedian. He's what's the, I don't know what the male equivalent of a drama queen is, but that's what he's being. A drama king, maybe. <laughs> and he's just getting all dramatic. He says, she needs me no more, no more! Would to God I had seen her lying dead at my feet before I heard those words. Lying dead at my feet. Dead at my feet. He's just having a bit of a hissy fit.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, actually.
0: He's just taking it all exceptionally personal. The idea that she actually might not need him. She can still love him. But the, fact, but the idea that he might not be needed is just too much for him. And he would just prefer her to be dead than to ever say that. But the bad news is, she's already dead. She's now glorified in heaven.
1: <laughs> What's well, great about this chapter, too, I was thinking as we were reading it, is last chapter seemed to paint a, a very bad picture of an overly motherly love. I'm glad this paints a picture of a terrible husband.
0: This is true. And the lady pleads with the dwarf to, to look at her and just to let go of the chain and send the tragedian away, whom she describes as that great, ugly doll.
1: We do see here at the end of this chapter... It says we see a glimpse for a moment. She's sharing a joke with him. It almost seems like it's working. She's getting to him. She's speaking over the tragedian directly to the dwarf, to the true self. And it even appeared as if he grew a little bit. So something is working here. And that's how we leave the chapter.
0: On a cliffhanger.
1: On a cliffhanger. And I have not actually read ahead to the next chapter as we record this, so I don't I am assuming that he does not make it as everyone else does. You're
0: such a pessimist.
1: I kind of hope he does. I would, I would like Lewis to finish with a beautiful contrast of that spirit winning over the ghost. We can't end on a loser, but for all you listeners, you're just going to have to tune back in next week in this chapter. We see a beautiful example of a person, Sarah Smith, that is in love himself. Capital L, capital H, and how that abundance, when filled up and poured into her, overflows and pours into other people. And what a beautiful example of that and an inspiration for us every day in our journey. We're not trying to be better because we want to earn heaven, but we want this grace to fill us up so we can just pour into the world. We can experience that joy. I read this and desired it. And so I hope listeners, as you hear this, or if you're reading the chapter, as a good listener, that you get that same desire to just be filled up by love himself.
0: And to realize that just simply living out your Christian life as a husband, wife, factory worker, whatever it might be, that God can do great things through you. And this ties back in with what we discussed in Mere Christianity, that in all of the small decisions that we make, we'll either be turning a little bit more into a hellish creature or a heavenly creature. And in this chapter, we get to see what a heavenly creature can look like, what a human soul can look like when it cooperates with the grace of God.
1: Well said, David. And I want to be that person.
0: I think that would begin probably by reading the show notes beforehand, listening to the episodes that we post. I think those would be, those would be good small decisions to start with. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know what? I did listen to that interview the day you told me to. Well done. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Don't expect more for another month.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of other disappointments, you have yet to do haikus again, which is a bit sad, but here are my haikus for this week's chapter.
1: I thought mine were so great.
0: They were great. I would like more, please.
1: (laughs) I'm loving yours. Let's hear it.
0: So this is one for the great lady. She is full of grace, radiating divine love. One of the great ones.
1: Mm, I don't think we need another one. That's good.
0: Well, I have one for the tragedian. I quite like this. We have to seem strong. We have to appear selfless. We have to be loved.
1: Oh, that's like slow clap worthy. <laughs> that's human nature right there.
0: And we also had a haiku from one of the listeners. So the listeners are picking up your slack, Nat. This was from West Texas Mishnah. And I think it's got some Gaelic in it. Uh, there's a there's a word here. I think it's pronounced Scoin in Eel, which means great or brilliant. He writes Read the Great Divorce. Our guide was a McDonald. Scoin in eel? Name, which means our guide was a McDonald. What a great name. Or something like that. If West Texas missioner would like to message me and tell me how badly I mispronounced that, please feel free.
1: (laughs) Well, on that note, everyone who's new to the channel we want to encourage people to rate us, share us on iTunes, share us it with your friends, subscribe to our uh, YouTube channel.
0: Or share it with your enemies if you didn't enjoy it. And if you didn't enjoy it, we'll promise we'll try harder next week.
1: <laughs> we'll have a better host next week, I guess.
0: One <laughs> we'll be going further up.
1: And further in. Cheers. Cheers.